Greetings to each of you this morning in Jesus' name. It's good to have each one of you here this morning to worship with us. For a message this morning, you can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. About two years ago, we had a, we had a meeting here, and um, I don't remember exactly what the nature of that meeting was, but uh, I believe Brother Joe uh, shared a devotional with us, and he asked us a question, you know, what, what kind of a church do we want to be here at Mabel Chapel? Um, and um, I've pondered that question. I asked you that question again this morning. What kind of a church do we want to be? Well, I have another question to go with that. What kind of a church will we be? Is there a difference between those two questions? Or maybe I should say, is there a difference between the results of those questions? Well, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, that's very familiar to us. Other foundation, for other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. A foundation. Christ said, upon this rock will I build my church. He was talking about Peter's confession of Christ as Lord, as the Messiah. Foundation is the undergirding of a building. You know the context of this verse here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's read from verses 8 through verse 16 in this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. I'll stop right there and say in the New King James, it says that we are fellow workers with God, that we're God's field, that we're God's building. According, verse 10, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's saying that he has laid a foundation, that there's a foundation that's already been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. But he's saying here in verse 10, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. So there's a foundation. How is it being built upon? Let's go on. Verse 12. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. 
If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, but as by fire, yet as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? We'll stop reading there, and let's go back to verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Now, what is going to test man's work? It's going to be time. Time is going to test our work. There may be more than that that's going to be tested, but uh, in, in the context here of this passage is building the church. Paul said, I laid a foundation of Jesus Christ, and another is building on that foundation. And there'll be a day that we'll see how it was built upon. There will come a time. So I'd like to present to you, brothers and sisters, that we're two years down the road. We're building on that foundation. We're building on the foundation that has been laid. And how we build will be tested by time. How about tomorrow? How about next year? How about the next generation? How about three generations from now? You see, I didn't set these blocks up here like this. Because you see, I have to take care how I build on the foundation or I won't ever be able to set those top blocks on. There'll be a collapse. And actually, right now, I could blow on that and knock it over. A little bit of a test would knock that over. This morning, I was doing a little experimenting. I was surprised how hard I had to blow to get that to even rock. Because I took time. I took care. I laid it with care. Because I have a feeling that we want a church like this. But will we have a church like this in the next generation? Three generations from now. How are we building? You see, that's, that's what it comes back to. It comes back to how are we building? Are we building with care? I want to look at verse 16 now. <clears throat> know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? What's he saying there? He's saying that the work that, that through the Spirit God is working to build this building. He's working in you. You're the temple of God. You're the building of God. And we are fellow laborers with God. We're laborers together with Him in this work. You are God's building as well. He's building you. He's building the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But how is our work going to be with God? 
Is it going to be with care? Is it going to be with submission to Him? Or are we going to build in small areas of unsubmission? That will weaken and weaken the future until it falls away. And what's interesting is if you build this, if you build this crooked, when you finally get to that top block and it falls off, it usually pushes the rest out of the way as well. There's a total collapse. And it's interesting to me to observe. Sometimes in people's lives, when, when certain areas crumble, their whole faith is lost. <clears throat> because of the instability below them. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 now. Brother John was here, I believe, last Sunday. <clears throat> but keep in mind the whole idea of the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. As we, move, as we move on in this passage. Here we see the church described as something different than a building. We see it described as a body. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Thinking about the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see the Spirit working individually, but also collectively to keep a unity in the church. Let's read verses 1 through 7 in this passage. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So here in verses, um, you'll see just following the verse I read about unity of the Spirit, verses 4 through 6. It talks about a whole lot of things that are one. There is one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. But then it changes in verse 7. It says, but unto every one of us, now that's individual, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So it's saying that there's individual measure of grace being given to each one of us as part of that body. There are things that are the same for us. The one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Those are the same. But then there's individual things that are given. Now, if we move on and read verse 11, and it's, it goes in, in verse 11, verse uh, 8, or verses 9 and 10 are just kind of a excerpt there, or not excerpt, but a, a, separate, a separate thought. And he goes back to what is actually given 
there from verse 7 and 8. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him and all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body to the edifying of itself in love. So in verse 7, it tells us what is given. In verse 12, it tells us the purpose for which it is given. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Verses 15 and 16 tell us that it's through the working of every part of the body. So God's giving those things individually, and as those things work together, they bring about something. As, as the body is fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part. Now, if you have a part of your body that's not working very well, that affects your whole body. About two weeks ago, some of you may have noticed I was limping a little bit. I noticed it a lot. Because I was playing ball and I stepped wrong and I got a real deep bruise on my heel and it really, really hurt to walk on, especially if my shoe had any heel on it at all. It put pressure on, on the back of my heel and it was just really painful. I had to walk on my tiptoe on my left foot. You know, it's amazing how that affected my whole body. It affected the way I walked. It affected the way, but you know, that's just about better now. And I don't even think about my heel. And you see, that's how it is in the, in the body of Christ. As, as the parts are working together in a way that where each member is healthy, you see, then we can function properly as a body. We can function. We can be effective. But there were some things I just wasn't very, wasn't much good for when my heel was hurting really badly. If I'd have had to run, I don't know what I would have done. I'd have kind of limped along, I guess. But it wouldn't be nearly as effective as I could run now. That my heel is better. And I think that's what Paul's illustrating here. He's illustrating how the gifts that God has given each of us individually is, is meant to be the working together of the body of Christ so that we can grow up into maturity. What kind of a church will we be? But this is all built on the foundation of the working of the Spirit in each of us individually. You see, the Spirit of God has to be working to maintain that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Throughout that passage that I just read about building the church, 
Think about the tremendous significance of the Spirit of God and the spiritual nature of the church on an individual and a collective level. The church is a spiritual body. We could go into a question about what the church is. We could talk about that. The church is a spiritual body. That's not the focus of my message this morning. But I I started out with this because I wanted the rest of my message to be connected with this idea of building the church because it talks more about the individual or it's, it's the process of the, of the message is more about the individual, but I want us to get a feeling for the importance of how the individual life, how the individual member, whichever one it is, hand, foot, so on, affects the body. And if we're going to be a healthy church, then we're going to have to have healthy individual spiritual lives to go with that or to create that to be a healthy church. I've been thinking about this message for months um, and uh, trying to trying to pull together thoughts and one of the things that kind of um, has been stirring in my mind is is kind of the general view of the Anabaptist uh, the Anabaptist Church from the from the rest of the Christian community, much of the Christian community in America in the Western world. And a lot of those people would say that the Anabaptist position is legalistic, or in other words, it's works-based, um, and that our, our salvation is based on works. And so I asked you the question this morning, is that how you feel about Anabaptism yourself? Um, likely it's not. So what's the alternative to that to the idea of something that's legalistic? Well, oftentimes people would say that the alternative is is that it's a spiritual church. The church would be spiritual versus versus legalistic. Uh, you hear that comparison. I've heard that comparison fairly often. And and the focus of my message this morning is about spirituality. Um, in fact, I have three messages that I'm working on. This is the first of three, and. Um, this one is about specifically about human spirituality. The next message is going to be about Christian spirituality. And the third one is going to be about the attraction of Christian spirituality. Now, again, I want to, I, I, those, those are really individual. You know, they, they talk about the individual, your individual experience. Um, but, but also, you know, somewhat collectively. But I want it to be in the foundation of, of a healthy spiritual church or the thought about building a spiritual church, building the body of Christ on a spiritual perspective. So this was, a, this was kind of a hard message for me to know where to even start. Um, but um, I believe that it's vitally important that we keep in focus the importance of our spiritual lives in relation to our Christian experience, in relation to our church life. 
And, and so I just start out with thinking, you know, well, what is spirituality? Um, you know, we, we use the term spirituality or somebody's spiritual or that person is spiritual. And what are we talking about? Uh, so I started to ask myself that question. And as I thought about that, I thought about, you know, if, if I had a, a canvas up here and I was painting you a picture of what spirituality looks like, I'm not sure I would be able to give you much more than a shadow um, because I don't have this all figured out. But I, my prayer is, as we look at the scripture and as we as we dig into that and we think about it, that we can come to a better understanding of what it means to be spiritual people. What does the Bible have to say about spirituality? A lot. John 4, 21. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. If the only true worship is in spirit and in truth, then it seems important that we understand what it means to be spiritual, to worship in spirit. Here's a list of things. They're not direct quotations, but taken directly from passages in the New Testament uh, in relation to the spirit and spiritual things. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit. The words of Jesus spoke were spiritual. The things of God were spirit are spiritually discerned. The scriptures were inspired by the spirit. The word is the sword of the spirit, and it can divide asunder the soul and spirit of man. The presence of the spirit is, now that was, that's, kind of a heading for the next few things that wasn't taken from the Scripture. The presence of the Spirit is this. Our guide to truth, our source of power, gives us words to speak, is our assurance of salvation. And then the Christian will be born of the Spirit. His Spirit will have a connection with God's Spirit. He will live in the Spirit. He will walk in the Spirit, produce the fruit of the Spirit, sing spiritual songs, be spiritually discerning, receive spiritual gifts, offer spiritual sacrifices. And that's just scratching the surface of what the Bible has to say about the spiritual. It has so much to say about the spiritual. It talks about three realms of spirituality. And again, there may be more. And if there's more, I would, I, I would love to have your input after the service or, or as we discuss these things. Um, the Bible talks about divine spirituality, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want to point out one thing. The character of that divine spirituality is life. God is the author and source of life. And divine spirituality, its character is life. Angelic spirituality. You have the devil and his angels. You also have God's angels. They are all created beings um, but they're different from humans. So you have divine spirituality, angelic spirituality, and you have human spirituality. And the Bible points out two basic forms of human spirituality, living and dead. So we're thinking about human spirituality this morning. I'd like for you to consider that all humans are spiritual, either dead 
spiritually dead or spiritually alive. You might ask a question about what it, well, how can it be spiritual if it's dead? And we might, we'll get into that a little bit. I want us to think about this verse. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. That's New King James, Proverbs 20, 27. The spirit of a man is the, can, is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. Had a, some email interaction with John Koblenz recently. That's been some months ago. And we're talking about some of these things. And I asked him some questions, and he, he said that, that spirit and heart are pretty much used interchangeably in the Scripture. And I've been thinking about that ever since as I've read through the New Testament and thinking about, you know, does that hold up as, as, as accurate? And then I started noticing a couple of verses, like this one here in Proverbs, where it talks about the spirit and the heart both in the same verse. I don't know if I can put this all together. It does seem like they're pretty much used interchangeably for the most part. But what is it saying here? It's saying something about a lamp being shined into the heart, the depths of the heart. And there's there's a few other verses in, at least one other verse in the New Testament where spirit and heart are used together in the same verse. But I really like this phrase, the inner depths of the heart. It's, it's, talking about, uh, it's talking about that organ that's in your body, right? No, it's not. It's talking about something deep down inside of you that you know is there. But there's no organ, there's no physical organ that's represented. It's talking about something deep inside of who you are. And it seems to me like, I don't know if I have a really good handle on this, but, but there's something that, that the scientific community and, and psychology is having a really hard time putting a finger on, and it's human consciousness. They don't hardly know what to do with human consciousness. There was one atheist, he went so far as to say that consciousness doesn't even exist because he didn't know what to do with it from his, from his atheistic perspective. Uh, but we're conscious what does that mean? And they struggle to really put a finger on that. Now, it seems to me like the spirit is like the consciousness of the heart. Like here we see a light shining into the depths of our heart. It's making it conscious. It's making it visible. But I want us to think about the heart and the spirit somewhat together because I believe that it's the fact that we are conscious of what our heart is doing that we can be aware of, uh, of that inner heart, that inner life. And I want to think about three basic parts of the spirit and the heart. And these are not all original with me. They're not original with me, but, um, and there may be more. But I think, I, I think there's strong connection in the Scripture. We're going to go through some of that. As we go through the message, um, number one, the mind. The mind is the like the thinking part of the heart, and um, you know some people compare the mind and the brain as one thing, but I, I believe they're they're somewhat different. The mind goes beyond 
the brain. Um, it's part of the heart. It's part of who we are. And it's really interesting to me how it seems like the mind is very much in focus in the New Testament. Time and time again, it talks about the mind. It even talks about the mind of God. And it talks about the mind in relation to the Spirit of God and the Spirit of man. Okay, so we have the mind. We have the conscience. The conscience is like the moral part of who we are deep inside. We have the will, which is the choosing part of who we are. Each one of us has a will. And we don't have a we don't have an organ that we can pull out and say, well, just he got a will transplant. It doesn't work that way. But we're pretty sure that we're pretty convinced about some things. And that's our will. Then there's the emotion. Maybe you could call this the attitude or the affection of the heart. And maybe all three of those should be included in that. But God created us this way. If you want to, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I've got a lot of scriptures, most of them printed out here in my notes. But you can turn there. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis if you want to. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. This is the first part of the verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he he, he them. And then go to chapter 2, verse 7. Where it says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. He formed him a body. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. So I want to point out two things. In the, in the passage in chapter 1, it says that God created man in his own image. So there is a similarity between who God is and who we are. God created us in His image. God is spirit. And we also have a spirit. We're created as spiritual beings. In, in verse chapter 2, verse 7, it says that into that body of dust, God breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. See, God's the author of life, and He was breathing life into this form. Life from Himself. And man became a living soul. And so man became living, but also eternal. So God created us in His image. Then God did something else. In chapter 2, verse 16, He gave us a gift. He gave us control over our spirit. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for then in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So, let's first of all think about death. Now we say that Adam died, right? God said he was going to die. So he died, but he didn't die physically that day. 
He died spiritually that day. Does that mean that Adam's spirit suddenly went into inexistence? No. It means that it was separated from God. See, death is separation. So man's spirit became separated from God. But the part that I really want us to, to notice here is the, the impact of man's choice in relation to this thing of his spirit and life and death. You see, it, is, it, it was Adam's choice to eat of that tree. And there's a whole lot more that is, is encompassed in that choice. And, and one of the prime, I believe one of the primary reasons for that choice is true relationship. Because we couldn't have true relationship without choice. True love is founded on choice as we understand it. But ultimately, in this passage, here in verses 16 and 17, God gave man a choice that it could either keep him with God or take him away from God. And that involved his spiritual destiny. Sin didn't plunge man's spirit into inexistence. It separated his spirit from God. Death is not inexistence. It's separation. I already mentioned that. But by contrast, before the fall, man's condition before the fall was a living soul and man became dead spiritually after the fall. A separated soul, a soul separated from God for eternity. And so we can see why God would be concerned that man would stay in that state for eternity. He said, you know, let's get him away from the tree of life. Let's he live forever in this state. Another thing that happened was the condition of man's spirit went from a condition of peace to a condition of fear. As soon as he came into the presence of God, or as soon as he thought about his connection with God, he became afraid. And, and Adam and Eve had not experienced that before. They'd been together with God. They'd communed with God. God had spoken to them openly. So I'd like to do now is I'd like to compare what it means, what I mean by dead spirit and what I mean by living spirit. I'll start out in Colossians 2, verse 13a. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now he's talking to the Christians about how they were in the past. He said, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Okay, so he was talking about a state of being, a dead state of being. So let's think about then what that meant for the mind. Colossians 1 verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. That word alienated means separated. And enemies is something that's opposed. So in their mind, in, in time past, these people, these Christians had been alienated from God, separated from God and enemies of God in their mind. Now, if we go back to Ephesians 4, and I'd like for you to turn there. I'm sorry, I meant to tell you to keep your finger there. But I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 4 because here this, it plays right into, 
in that passage what we're talking about here. I'm going to read uh, Ephesians 4, verse 16. It was the last verse I read, and I'll read 17 as well. This I say, uh, no, verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. You see how the mind is connected here? Saying that their mind is alienated from God. They have vanity in their mind and they're alienated because of blindness in their heart. So there's not light in that heart to open up and reveal what's truly there, the fact that they're alienated from God. Having the understanding is darkened. The understanding of the mind is darkened. It doesn't, it's not there. And being alienated from the life of God because of the blindness of their heart. Okay, how about the conscience? Looked at the mind, the conscience. Titus 1.15 Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure but even their mind and conscience is defiled. So you see, even the conscience, the, the moral basis can't even be correct in this dead state. How about the will? Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's talking about Christ's sacrifice for us. But in that, it's, it's, it's saying, and there's a verse in the New Testament parallel with this, that we have turned everyone to our own way. And that's our will. Our will is the way we want to go. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. How about the emotion? Romans 2, verses 8 and 9. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So you see we've got tribulation and anguish that are part of that separated state from God. After the fall, immediately after the fall, one of the first things that man noticed was that he was naked. And I've pondered that. You know, that was his first moment of self-awareness. What does that mean? The self-awareness of their separation from God brought fear. I was afraid because I was naked. They were exposed. They recognized their exposed condition before God. And I hid myself. But what did fear cause them to do? Fear and self, the combination of fear and self-awareness caused them to do something. When God approached Adam about what he had done, what did he say? He said it was the woman's fault. You see, 
He, he wanted to preserve himself. He'd become self-aware and he wanted to preserve himself from his guilt. And so he blamed the woman for what he had done. But he had done it. He had eaten of the fruit. But he blamed the woman. You see, when, when man's spirit became separated from God, from God and he became self-aware, then his own life became the focus of his spirit. And so he, his interest had to do with himself. What does that mean? That means his flesh existence became very important to him. And if you read on through the, through the book of Genesis following the fall, it's just the, the wickedness of man just, just exploded. And it had to do with man being selfish and trying to, to preserve himself and make things better for himself. And the New Testament has a term for that. It's called in the flesh. In Romans 8 verse 8, it says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So in the flesh here isn't talking about someone who has a physical body. Because that would mean that no one who has a physical body could please God. It's talking about someone whose spirit is centered around their flesh life. Their interest is in their physical existence, in their, in their self-preservation. It's selfishness. Ephesians 2, verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You see, our nature is the very core of who we are. And we were by nature, before we came to Christ, we were by nature the children of wrath. That inner being within us was flesh and selfish centered. That was our nature. That was the essence of who we were. We were dead in trespasses and sins. First John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, those are desires that are coming from within. Those lusts that come out of who we are. And as unbelievers, that was our nature to seek for what would preserve us, fulfill our lusts. It's a pretty bleak picture. But you know, you look at humanity today and the picture looks pretty bleak. How about a living spirit? John 6, 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. What about the mind? Ephesians 4.23, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Colossians 3.10, 
and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of Him that created Him. You see, after the image of who? The Creator. The image of God. Renewed in the image of God. In our minds. In our knowledge. The conscience. Romans 9, 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. So you see, Paul's conscience is confirming the truth. Now, 1 Timothy 3, 9, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. See, the, the moral, through the knowledge, through the renewed knowledge, the conscience is renewed also. It's purified. The will, John 6, 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And I know that's a verse about Jesus. That's talking about Jesus is, is talking about whose will he was doing. But you see, he said, as the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. So he's saying that I'm sending you not to do your own will, but mine. Just like the Father sent him to do the Father's will. How about the emotion? So I read that passage earlier about um, tribulation and anguish. I'll pick up on that verse. Verse 9 and read verse 10, the following verse. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So you see the difference. Tribulation and anguish. But to him that worketh good Glory, honor, and peace. A living spirit is connected to the spirit of life. Romans 8, 15 and 16. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again into fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now I want you to notice this next verse. The spirit itself, capital S, God's spirit, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You see, there's a connection. When God's spirit comes into the believer, it identifies with our spirit. There's a connection of God's spirit. It sheds light into our life and awakens our spirit, makes it alive, a living spirit. The New Testament has a phrase for this. It's called in the Spirit. Okay, this is Romans 8, 9, which is the verse following the one I just read about. Ye, um, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. So the living human spirit is made alive and is being reformed into the image of the Creator. What's the goal of that? What's the goal of that reformed mind? It's not to live for ourselves, but to live for Him who created us. The book of Revelation talks about an, another kind of death, another event, it's called the second death. 
So one group of people, on one group of people, the second death will have no power. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. See, there's a first resurrection, a first coming of life. And the second death will have no power on that person. But there's another group of people who are experienced a second death. Romans 20, verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So you see, there's death, a second death. See, this thing about spiritual life is not just about my experience here or my experience now, but it's about eternity. About an eternal soul, either with God in peace or separated with Him from Him in tribulation and anguish. It relates to both. It relates to my life now and it relates to then. In conclusion... Moses says to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. You see, God gave Adam a choice about his spirit and he chose death. Jesus Christ came so that fallen, dead man could have life and have it more abundantly. John 10.10 Brothers and sisters, which direction are our choices taking us? Are our choices taking us towards life? Or are they taking us away from life? You see, the things that we're choosing right now The direction that we go with our lives, the choices that we make is ultimately about that direction. Where are we going? Are we going toward God or away from Him? And is there there no hope? Um, Is there no hope for our dead condition? Jesus had this to say about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I say to you, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a man shall ask of any of you that is a father, will he get, sorry, if a man shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? A scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? But you see what was at the first of that passage? It was asking, seeking, knocking, pursuing, a diligent pursuit of God. Imagine that you were getting ready for a big trip. Trip of a lifetime, maybe to the Holy Land, maybe somewhere else that you've longed to go. Your tickets are bought, your plane tickets are bought. You know what time you need to be at the airport. And you know you have your bags packed, you're ready to get up and hit the road in the morning. And you lay down and you check four times to make sure 
that your alarm clock is set and going to go off to wake you up. And then you put in earplugs. Does that make sense? Absolutely not. Because you want to wake up in the morning. You want to go on that trip. And I believe so often in our lives, we, we want the spiritual things of God, but we put in earplugs. We don't actively, truly actively pursue the eternal, the spiritual. And I speak to myself this morning, brothers and sisters. We can't pursue life in the flesh and expect God to overwhelm our choices. We have to pursue life in the Spirit. What kind of a church do we want to have? Do we want a vitally alive spiritual church? Are we going to just, however it comes out, build haphazardly? Are we going to be focused in our pursuit of the spiritual, being a, a vitally alive spiritual church? Jesus Christ is the foundation. How will we build thereon? I'd like to look just a moment at each one of these things again, the mind, the conscience, the will, and the emotion. Jesus said, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I'll compare him to someone. A man who built his house on a rock. Now there was two things that Jesus said. He said he heareth them and doeth them. The mind. We must know the Word of God. Without knowledge of the truth, we aren't going to be able to, to understand the truth and know the truth. We have to, to be in the Word of God on a regular basis, a regular diet of truth. Conscience. Knowing the truth gives us a proper moral framework for our actions. And then we have to live according to that proper moral framework. We can't violate our conscience, violate the Word of God, violate the truth, and expect for our hearts to grow. The will, knowing, only has value if, if it affects the way we live through choice. See, our will is the choosing part of us. And unless the knowledge that we have about the truth actually moves into action, we, we purposefully choose to obey the truth, it will have no value in our, in our spiritual lives. What about the emotion? When these three, these first three, mind, conscious, and will are in place, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, there's fruit. Love, joy, peace. Which heart doesn't long for those emotions? We sang about it in one of the one of the songs this morning. May the Lord bless each one of you as you personally pursue a living relationship, spiritual relationship with God, and as we, as a brotherhood, 
pursue a united spiritual relationship with one another. Lord bless you.